The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. Amen. Thank you, servants of music, faithfully leading us in song that, Lord willing, take our minds and our thoughts to heaven where they belong as we gather as the church, the body of Christ, the saints, to worship our great God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And now we have the privilege to continue our worship by studying the Word of God together. So I'd invite you, if you have a Bible, you can open up to Luke chapter 5, where we'll be today. If you are in fifth grade or younger, you're invited to go to Children's Church, and you can just follow the crowd back there. If you have a Bible, I recommend you bring it. I had the privilege of teaching Children's Church about a month ago. Man, I had fun. I had, we learned the Bible it was fun. Did I say it was fun? Is that legal in church? Well, anyway, I can't wait. Can I teach in children's church again someday, David? Someday? All right, I'll, I'll check in with you. I wish I was in fifth grade again. Okay, well, anyway, enough of that. Well, if you're a visitor today, again, welcome. Thanks for being with us. We've been going through the gospel of Luke during this time. Together, this is the life, really, it's not the life of Christ. Luke is not a biography of Jesus. None of the Gospels are. They're an account of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And for the most part, they only covered three years of His life. And it doesn't even cover the three years of His ministry. It's actually just a few selected short periods of that three-and-a-half-year period. As a matter of fact, the Gospel of John spends 12 chapters on the last six days of His ministry. And so Luke gives his account, 24 chapters in our English Bible, of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's not forget why Luke is writing. Luke was writing probably in the 60s A.D. Jesus has been risen from the dead and ascended for about 25 years. The church is being established. It is growing. It's spreading, spreading out beyond Jerusalem and Judea and the Jews to the Gentiles. Luke has the blessed opportunity to be in partnership with the Apostle Paul, the Apostle to the Gentiles, for ministry to complement the ministry of the 12 apostles in Jerusalem. Paul was a church planter beyond the regions of Israel, and Luke was privileged to be a part of that ministry. And so they're going around preaching the gospel, planting churches, seeing saints grow, interacting with newly believing Gentiles who don't have their roots necessarily in the Old Testament theology. Luke's meeting all kinds of people, from princes and kings down to the lowliest of the low, the slaves, runaway slaves. And one influential man that he met during his ministry was Theophilus, and that's who he writes this book to. He writes the book of Luke to Theophilus and the book of Acts to Theophilus. Some would say that while he's writing to Theophilus in the book of Luke, which comes before Acts, that Theophilus was interested in Christianity and maybe even on the fence or about to become a Christian. And so he writes the account of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ to give him a fullness of, of understanding because you can't become a Christian until you have a certain amount of information. You need a modicum of truth to fully understand the gospel in order to believe in it in order to be saved. And so that's what Luke is attempting to do for Theophilus, and in the book of Acts, it looks like Theophilus is a believer, and he continues to encourage him in the faith with that account. So, one of Luke's goals, we keep saying this because I don't want us to forget it, and that we saw it in Luke chapter 1 at the very beginning, 
as he's writing this, he's telling Theophilus that what I'm giving you is actual history. It's real history. It is not mythology. It's not legend. These aren't made-up stories. This isn't the imagination of the early church glamorizing what Jesus was really like. We have to get behind that to find the real historical Jesus who's just a man and didn't do miracles. No, this is real history. You can count on it. As you read Luke, you take it at face value, and that's actually what happened. And as we read through Luke, very quickly we realize there are some extraordinary things that take place. Things beyond the natural, the supernatural, things that can't be repeated, things that are unprecedented, and they are attributed to this one, this Jesus Christ. And so that's the portrait that Luke is trying to faithfully lay out. So if you're not a Christian here this morning, hopefully when you hear this true story about the Lord Jesus Christ in one day, one event in His life 2,000 years ago, uh, you will see you'll be confronted with the real Jesus. He is unlike any other. He is more than a man. We'll see that clearly. He's actually your only hope. But if you're a Christian, this is an old hat. We, we don't get tired or about reading the Bible over and over again. It's the living Word of God. We can't exhaust its depths, its riches, its truth. Every time we read it, it is just glorious. There's always something there to feed our soul, to change our thinking, to challenge our thinking, to increase our faith, to give us hope. That's what the Bible's intended to do. So if you're a Christian here this morning, I just want to encourage you with that. We're about to dive in to the living Word of God to feed our soul, to be reminded of the glories of the Lord Jesus Christ, because He's front and center in this passage. It's all about Him. It's all about Jesus. Uh, the title this morning, I just put real simple, Jesus Heals a Leper, because that's what happens. Didn't want to try to be creative. Luke isn't creative in telling the story. It's very straightforward. It is simple. A third grader could understand this. The greatest of scholars can't exhaust its truth and applications. Jesus heals a leper. We saw earlier a couple of times in the, the Gospel of Luke already that Jesus was doing miracles. As a matter of fact, just a couple of weeks ago, we read in Luke chapter 4 that Jesus did a miracle. He healed Simon's mother-in-law of a fever that was going to probably kill her. And there was a statement in there in verse 40 that said, after he healed Simon, Simon's mother-in-law, while the sun was setting, all those in the entire region who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to Jesus. These people came and they were just crushing in on the house. And Jesus, he didn't turn them away, laying his hands on every one of them. healed every one of them. And the word spread like wildfire. Even before this, Jesus had done some miracles. He cast out a demon early on in Capernaum, and then verse 37 of chapter 4 says, and the report about Jesus, His amazing teaching, it uses the word amazing, His amazing teaching and the amazing miracle that He had just done, the word got out and said the report about Him was spreading into every locality in the surrounding district. Before that, we go back, prior to that, he was down in Jerusalem and where he began his ministry, and he, he did a couple of things. He 
did his first miracle and turned water into wine. John chapter 2, and it says that many saw the miracles that he was doing. And word spread like wildfire. It went right up the grapevine or the, uh, the gossip vine all the way up to northern Israel in the land of Galilee. So early on, right out of the gate, people were talking about this Jesus, who he was, this rabbi from Nazareth, and what he was doing. It was amazing. He was awesome. He was different by virtue of his teaching and also of his miracles, and that's how it started. And so the word was out. And that's just compounded with this story, too. We're going to see that. So let's go ahead and look at uh, Jesus heals a leper. So he's maybe uh, a couple of months into his ministry now. People in his region know that, oh, he does miracles apparently everywhere he goes. He's a healer. We've seen some of the miracles. He was healing all kinds of miracles. And for whatever reason, Luke is very selective. Jesus did probably hundreds of thousands of miracles in the three and a half years of his ministry. And Luke just records a few of them. John, in his, his gospel, he only records seven. Well, why'd you pick those seven? You could ask Luke the same thing. Why'd you pick these ones? At least three times Luke mentions Jesus healing lepers. That, that's unique. That is purposeful. That is intentional. Why are you doing this, Luke? Why are you highlighting that Jesus could heal leprosy? Because that's what this account is all about. Let's read it, verses 12 through 16. Follow as I read. While uh, he was in one of the cities... That is, the, the towns of Galilee, literally, we said that there were over 200-plus towns in Galilee sprawling around all over northern Israel at the time of Jesus, where he grew up and where he was living and where he had his headquarters. While he was in one of those towns, going, by the way, we said, saw earlier, it said he was going from synagogue to synagogue, synagogue to synagogue, synagogue to synagogue. That's what he's doing. So he's got an itinerant preaching ministry. He's preaching the gospel. And it says, behold, behold, look out, get this. You'll never believe it. You will ne this is uh, startling. That's what behold means. Well, why is it startling? Well, because there was a man covered with leprosy. Luke is a doctor, and he's very specific and uses terminology the other two gospels don't in describing this man with leprosy. Luke says, this man was covered from head to toe with leprosy. He was full of leprosy. If you're a Jew, that meant one thing, and it was not good. Behold, Jesus is out in public, he's preaching, he's healing, and all of a sudden there was a man covered with leprosy, and when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face, and he implored him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him. Jesus ordered him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, just as Moses commanded, as a testimony to them. Shh, be quiet. Don't tell anybody. Verse 15, but the news about him was spreading even farther. And large crowds were gathering to hear Jesus and to be healed of their sicknesses. But, but in contrast, Jesus would often slip away to the wilderness or a deserted, isolated place away from the crowds and pray. Let's look a little deeper at this short, beautiful story. I just broke it up into th three parts to help us walk through it. 
regarding Jesus healing a leper, the first one is the request, comes in verse 12, and then there's the response to the request, the response in verse 13 and 14, and then the report in 15 and 16. So the request, the response, and the report. First, let's look at the request. The request is from this man, this man who has leprosy. If you have a Bible, turn to Leviticus. Very exciting book in the Bible, Leviticus. There's some great stories in there. I don't know why it gets such a bad rap all the time. Leviticus 13. We're not going to read through Leviticus 13 and 14, but this is 1400 B.C. This is while God is giving His law to the Israelites. Moses is up on the mountain. God gives Moses the Ten Commandments, but He gives them a total of about 613 laws, including the Ten Commandments. And some of those laws are laws regarding this disease called leprosy. And the laws regarding leprosy take up the entirety of Leviticus 13 and 14, two of the longest chapters in the Old Testament. 59 verses and 57 verses just on this disease called leprosy. God doesn't give that kind of attention on any other ailment or disease in the Mosaic Law. So this is special. That's why when we read in the New Testament this story and why Luke chose this miracle of leprosy, if you're a Jew in Jesus' day, this, this jumped out at you. Because you're thinking what you learned in uh, children's church or children's synagogue when you were growing up as a Jew in Jesus' day, in the Old Testament, about the, the disease called leprosy, the most feared disease imaginable, leprosy. God spoke on it comprehensively. Just a couple of highlights there in Leviticus 13, starting at verse 1. What did God have to tell Moses about? Oh, by the way, when you go into the land of Canaan in particular, you don't have the temple yet, you've got the tabernacle. When you go into the land of Canaan, there will be leprosy. There's a disease there. It's all over the place. It is rampant in Canaan or Palestine or what would become Israel. Leprosy was. It was uh, there and present all throughout the history of Israel in the Old Testament. And it was there when, it's going to be there when you get there. Therefore, you need to guard against it. It is dangerous. Pay attention. Very specific details. Particular process and protocol. Do not neglect this. The safety, the health, the glory of God is at stake. That's how serious this was. So the Lord Yahweh spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, Moses was the high, or Aaron was the high priest. He represented the priesthood. The priests were the ones who would deal with leprosy and ailments like it and the sacrifices in the, the tent. Saying, when a man or a woman, because later it says a woman, has on the skin of his body a swelling or a scab or a bright spot, and it becomes an infection of leprosy on the skin of his body, then his, he shall be brought to Aaron the priest or to one of his sons, the priests. The priest shall look at the mark on the skin of the body, and if the hair in the infection has turned white, then on and on it goes. And if you just read the whole chapter, we learn that leprosy is a terrible disease. We learn that it is a skin disease. That's how they diagnosed it. They didn't diagnose it by a pathology like we do today, looking at the cellular level of uh, viruses and those kind of things. But it was external. They examined and made a diagnosis based on external, and this was on the skin. It was based on the symptoms, and it delineates all the symptoms. So if somebody, one of the Jews, began to get some kind of a noticeable mark on their skin, then it was to be taken seriously 
and examined. And in Leviticus 13, here are the symptoms they were to be looking for on the skin. If there was an infection, if there was swelling, if there was raw flesh, if there was a scar, a white spot, a reddish spot, a scab, white hair or yellowish hair inside of a scar, a boil, scaly skin, balding skin, on and on it went, then that was to be diagnosed as a potential candidate of infectious leprosy. That's why the chapter is so long. So if there was a suspicion of leprosy just based on a mark on your skin, actually many times it began on the face, a white spot on the face, a red spot on the face, a, a strange patch of balding on the face, a scar on the face, a scab on the face. Immediately you were to take, it's kind of like when we get a scar or, I mean, a, uh, a mole, a scary looking one, immediately we go to the doctor. Get it examined. That's the same thing here. Don't mess around. You go to the priest, he looks at it. Whether you, it's infectious or not, it goes on to say that you are going to be, you're going to be isolated for seven days, quarantined. We don't know that you're infectious yet, but you know what? You can't go home. You can't be with your family. You can't touch anybody. We are going to quarantine you for seven days. Come back in seven days. We're going to examine it again. And then the priest would examine it again and see if it spread and got worse, then it's probably leprosy. We need to take drastic action. If it didn't spread, pretty much the same, then they're quarantined for another seven days. Fourteen days. They might not even have the disease. Isolated by themselves, come back after the 14 days. If it hasn't spread, the priest may make a determine, you know what, uh, this is not infectious leprosy, just a scar, you'll be fine, you are clean. But they still had to go wash their clothes. So even if they were not infectious, they were quarantined for 14 days. These are God's precautions. And then they had to cleanse themselves, take a bath, literally. But if the priest at any one of these stages determined that, oh, you know what, it's, it's growing, it is spreading, this is not good, the priest would make an announcement when he discovered, you know what, this is leprosy. And he would, and it's, it is drastic. If you got your Bible there in Leviticus 13, uh, when the priest, by the way, the passage over and over again, it's, if you think you have leprosy, go to the priest, go to the priest, go to the priest, go to the priest, go to the, go to the holy man of God. Don't go to anybody else. Don't go to Moses, he's a prophet. Don't go to the doctor, they don't have any. Go to the priest. Go to the priest. If it's determined they have leprosy, Leviticus 13.45 says this, As for the leper who has the infection, his clothes shall be torn. The hair of his head shall be uncovered. He shall cover his mustache and cry out, Unclean! Unclean! What's he doing that? He's warning people that he has leprosy. In other words, don't come near me, stay away from me, do not touch me. Prior to that, God said if he does have leprosy, he is to be quarantined immediately. Then long term, he is to be isolated. Literally, it says, quote, put out of the camp. He's not allowed to live in the town, dwell in the city, can't be around people. He's utterly ostracized from the community, can't be with his family, can't be with his friends, can't be with his employer if he has a job. So this determination affects every area of your life, and you're sent out of the community. And he is to be isolated from the community forever, potentially, until they die, potentially. If for some reason over the course of time the leprosy appears to have healed, 
he could request to see the priest, and someone would have to bring him, escort him to the priest to be examined. That hardly ever happened. If you were pronounced by the priest as unclean, then pretty much your fate was sealed. And first and foremost, that's why leprosy began to represent sin for the Jews, isolation. Because when you were pronounced unclean because of this infectious disease, you were also ceremonially or religiously unclean. You could not participate in the worship of the theocracy of Israel. You were not allowed to touch anything, and if anybody touches you, they are unclean. So it's highly contagious as a disease, but you could be contaminated ceremonially by interacting, touching a leper. That's why they're completely isolated. Well, that seems harsh. It's not harsh. It was the right thing to do. This is out of God's care and concern for the community to prevent disease spreading and taking over and really killing all the people. This was an act of necessity, and you could even say an act of grace on God's part to protect other people. And so, uh, leprosy came with a stigma. It was the, the worst, most horrific thing you could possibly uh, attracting as a disease, because usually it attacked your face. We don't know exactly what leprosy is today. Some people say it's Hansen's disease. Probably not. This is, we're talking about a disease that was around 2,000 years ago. Uh, the description here 3,400 years ago isn't like Hansen's disease today. I remember when we were in India a few years ago, uh, they brought in the lepers off the street from India, and we prayed for them. We didn't just pray for them. We were asked to put our hands on their head and touch them, and we did. That is not this kind of leprosy. They had a form of leprosy, but it wasn't this one. It wasn't the, contagio- uh, the contagious kind that was fatal, lethal, contagious, highly contagious. And it came with that stigma that became synonymous with sinfulness, uncleanness. As a matter of fact, that's the phrase used in describing leprosy. It was uncleanness, uncleanness, uncleanness. And that's how God describes sin, unclean. If you're not a Christian, you're unclean, 1 Corinthians 7. If you're not a believer, if you don't know Jesus, you're unclean from God's point of view. Your soul is dirty. You're not forgiven. You're destined for hell. You have no forgiveness. You have no advocate. God is not your friend. His wrath abides on you. You're unclean. And then the Bible talks about Christians who are clean. You've been forgiven. You've been washed by the blood of the Lamb. All sins, totally forgiven, born again, regenerated, renewed with spiritual life for the first time in your existence. That's what it means to know God and to know Jesus. So, that is how leprosy is understood by the Jews in their theocracy carrying over into the New Testament. Leprosy was the worst. As a matter of fact, God, as we go from here, uh, a few months later, God gives the book of Deuteronomy, and He just makes a passing comment. Oh, by the way, Moses, remind the people about the horrors of leprosy. Of all the diseases He could have mentioned, that's the one He picked. So not only is leprosy really a picture or almost a type of sin, it's also a type of death because leprosy led to death. As a matter of fact, it was almost instant death. What is death in the Bible? Separation, that's what it means. Death means separation, whether it is physical separation from the body, spiritual separation from God in this life if you don't know Him, or eternal separation in the lake of fire. That is all described as death. Death is separation. The first thing that happens to you if you have leprosy, then you are separated from
from the community. You're separated from your religion. You're separated from sacrifices that could be offered on your behalf. You're separated from everything in your life. That's death. That was a taste of death in this life. That's why the New Testament picks up on this terminology and says, if you know Jesus, if you've been born again, if you're a Gentile who believes in the gospel, you are no longer separated. You are welcomed into the family of God. Unclean, unclean. Everybody knew this. This was the Mosaic Law. It says clearly, if you have leprosy, you are to be isolated. You are to be ostracized outside the camp and have interactions with no one. We go to the New Testament, go throughout the Old Testament, uh, and you see lepers here and there. Sometimes God curses people with leprosy as a curse and the stigma that goes along with it. Numbers chapter 12, not long after Leviticus 13, Moses, his two siblings, Miriam and Aaron, Moses' older brother and sister, it says uh, in Numbers chapter 12, verse 1, that Miriam and Aaron were talking bad about Moses behind his back. They're gossiping about their younger brother. They're gossiping about a prophet of God. They're gossiping about Moses who just led them into freedom out of Egypt, who parted the Red Sea, who's providing supernatural food from heaven every step of the way, who's on the hill talking to Almighty God. After all of that, Miriam and Aaron are gossiping about their own brother. And then you read the story. Well, why? Well, actually, it was about Moses' wife. She was a foreigner. She wasn't a Jew. She was a Cushite woman. She was a black woman. Could have been they were gossiping because of interracial marriage. But it was definitely about his Cushite wife. She's a foreigner. She's a stranger. She's different. It's called prejudice. Read a few more verses. It said, you know, so God called a meeting. Moses, tell Aaron and Miriam, meet me here tomorrow, 12 noon. See all three of you there. God had a meeting, and he just laid into it and rebuked Miriam and Aaron. How, how dare you talk to my prophet like this? How dare you? And then, it, and then before God went up, it said, the Lord burned with anger. He was furious at Aaron and Miriam, furious. The wrath of God, and instantaneously, God turned Miriam into a leper, white as snow from head to toe. That meant imminent death, a horrific death, the most shameful death you could possibly have. It was shameful because it usually started in your face. When you got something going on in your face, that's shameful. That is embarrassing. You don't want anybody to see. You want to hide. Then it spreads all over your body. Then it creates cavities as it's boring into your face and into your bones. It was a degenerative, horrific disease. Well, that's what God struck Miriam with on the spot. And then Aaron gets down and starts crying, weeping. God, please, uh, we blew it. Forgive us. And then God in His grace heals Miriam. But she still had to go through the process of being restored. So anyway, this is the backdrop of leprosy in the Old Testament and how absolutely, utterly horrific it was. And uh, the number one rule for Jews in Jesus' day, based on the Old Testament and even the proliferation of this disease in His day, number one rule if you're a Jew, if you're a good Jew, an obedient Jew, a clean Jew, a righteous Jew, a rigorous Jew, a ritualistic Jew, you don't go near a leper. You just don't do it. And God forbid, the number one thing you don't do ever is think about touching a leper. You don't 
touch a leper. Let's go back to Luke chapter 5. The request, while Jesus was in one of the cities, behold, behold, get this. There, there was a leper. Why does he say behold? It's because a, a leper got loose. He may have been confined to some faraway leper colony outside the city. And if people knew that he was a leper, well-abiding, obedient Jews, they knew the law of Moses. Well, a leper's not supposed to be in the community. He's not supposed to be interacting with people. He's not supposed to be in the city. He's supposed to be isolated. What in the world is he doing? Where does this leper think he's going? Where is, what's, uh, and he could have been stoned to death on the spot. Somehow he manages to get loose, make it through the crowds. People, all people were following Jesus all over the place. And he fights his way through, and he actually manages to, he finds Jesus and makes it up to Jesus. No doubt this leper heard, there is a rabbi, there is a teacher, his name is Jesus. He is healing people. He's healing all kinds of people, all kinds of diseases, including the most notorious disease of all, leprosy. How do we know that? Because it said earlier, he's healing all kinds of diseases. So somehow, uh, our text says, he found Jesus, and when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face on his face. Matthew says he fell on his face and he bowed down before Jesus. So he knew Jesus was more than just a man. He knew that Jesus was more than just a prophet because John the Baptist was a prophet. He didn't go to John the Baptist. John the Baptist didn't do miracles. So he knew that Jesus was more than a prophet. He knew that Jesus was more than a priest because Leviticus 13, 14 says, if you think you're healed, you go to a priest. You go to a priest. You go to a... It just was emphatic. You don't go to anybody else but the priest. He didn't go to a priest. He went to Jesus. He's more than just a teacher. They had all kinds of rabbis in all their synagogues. He's not going to those guys. So Jesus is greater than a prophet. Jesus is greater than a priest. Jesus is greater than the greatest rabbi. He knows that Jesus is the only one who can help him. He knows that his destiny is death, practically speaking. It says, he, so when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face Matthew said that he bowed down before him. Mark says falling on his knees before him. This is very deliberate. Prostrate before Jesus. And he implored, begging Jesus, and he said, Lord, kurios. This is Lord. This isn't just uh, mister. This is the fact that he understands Jesus is different. There is something special, like in the words of Nicodemus. I know that you're from God because of the things that you do. No one else can do. Or in the words of the Samaritan woman, could this be the Messiah? So he calls him Lord. He just did this. We saw this last week. When someone called him Lord, he's more than a man. He is the Lord. He knows that Jesus is the Lord or more than a man because of his request. He says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Wow. This is a, an admission that Jesus is completely sovereign. And I don't want to presume on your grace, God. I don't want to go in and impose my rights. I don't want to assume my rights over yours. I don't, I don't want to demand a healing from you. This is just the opposite. The attitude is 180 degrees the opposite. He's got a godly attitude that Jesus talked about in the Beatitudes. Remember? Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's humble. The poor in spirit. Those who are broken, a broken and contrite heart those who know that they're in a need, they have a need and they can't solve their need, only God can meet their need, utterly broken, utterly helpless about himself and at the same time recognizes that Jesus is more than a man. He is the sovereign one. He can do this miracle. He has the ability. He is supernatural. Not only that, it's his prerogative 
to do it. He says, if you're willing, if you're willing, Lord, heal me if you're willing. You know, there were times where Jesus sent people away. Remember that one woman, the Syrophoenician woman? Lord, do this for me. He said, no, I came for the Jews. I don't feed dogs. Or when uh, James and John's mother came to Jesus last week of his life, she made a request. Lord, put my sons on the right and the left. He said, nope. He did eventually meet the needs of the Syrophoenician woman, but look at Jesus' beautiful response uh, after this right attitude, this humble attitude. Uh, that's the promise of Scripture. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. I did want to contrast that, that attitude as we go through. You can't help but think about modern-day healing ministries and healers, so-called healers, in contrast to what you see here. Where the biblical example is clear, it's pretty much Jesus does unique miracles. His, his ministry was not to be re replicated by anybody. The apostles couldn't replicate everything Jesus did. The apostles didn't walk on water. They did miracles for a reason, but not like Christ. He is unique. So that's the request. Lord Jesus, heal me, but only if you're willing. Heal me, you are master and Lord. Heal me, you're the sovereign one. Heal me, I have a need that only you can meet. Heal me. It's his request. How does Jesus respond? This is the gracious Savior, the response. Uh, verse 13, the gospel of Mark adds, and moved with compassion. He hurt in his gut. He felt sorry for this leper. That's what it means. Utter gut-wrenching sympathy would be a literal graphic translation. He's the Savior. I came to seek and save those who were lost. This is the love of God. We don't know if this person is saved. He just, he loves sinners. He loves people. He loves humility. He loves those who show reverence. This is why he came. Verse 13, so moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand, and he did the one thing you do not do to a leper. You do not touch a leper, especially if you are not a priest. And Jesus stretched out his hand, and he touched him. This is a beautiful thing. I mean, just the sign of him doing that is beyond description. It's more words than you can imagine to describe what's going on there with the Lord Jesus Christ, his love, his concern, his compassion, his mercy, his mission, his supernatural power. He touched him. He showed no partiality. He showed no favoritism. He was not prejudiced. This is an unworthy, despicable, unclean sinner. That's all there is to it. Was Jesus violating the law? If he was only a man, yes, because he wasn't a priest. But Jesus is the great high priest, isn't he? His priesthood is higher than the Aaronic Levitical priesthood. His is the eternal Melchizedek priesthood. His priesthood outranks the Aaronic priesthood. He overrides the disease and the contamination and the sin. He does a miracle, unprecedented stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. He just says it in a word. He has creative power. Just with his word, God, including the Lord Jesus Christ, brought the entire universe into existence. And with the word, Jesus heals this tragic disease. I am willing, be cleansed. Catharsis, be clean, be clean. And immediately, and immediately. Notice this is a full-blown chronic disease that can be clearly diagnosed 
and it took over his entire body. He had leprosy from head to toe. This man was walking death. It says immediately, instantaneously, the leprosy left him, went away. Complete, total, perfect healing. There are no healers today doing this. It's not happening. They're counterfeits. They're words. There's no one like Jesus. What a relief. This must have been verse 14. Everybody must have been stunned. The audience just watching in awe, utter silence, probably not even knowing what to say. Why did you see what just happened? Who is this Jesus? And then immediately Jesus orders the leper, this is strange, to tell no one. Can you imagine? How, maybe he was 30 years old. He's had leprosy for 20 years. He's been isolated. The first thing you want to do is go tell your family, right? Tell everybody and celebrate it. Look what he's doing. I've been healed. He's not allowed to do that. Tell no one. He gives them three commands. Tell no one. Don't say a word. Rather, go show yourself to the priest because that's what Leviticus 14 says to do. Obey the Mosaic law. And make an offering. Have two lambs and a bird killed on your behalf as a burnt offering, as a sin offering to make atonement in fulfillment of the Scriptures. Well, this guy does none of it. For your cleansing, and we would probably be just like this guy. Well, why didn't he obey Jesus? Because he's just like you, that's why, and me. And we wouldn't do this either. For your cleansing, just as Moses commanded. Get this, as a testimony to them. To who? A testimony to the priests and the plurality of eyewitnesses. Why? Probably so it can be validated as a, a true, bona fide, legitimate miracle. There were imposters. There were fakers. Jesus said there would be false prophets. There were false prophets in the Old Testament. There were counterfeit miracles. There will be future false prophets in the future. There will be counterfeiters who say they do miracles. And Jesus says, no, you do what the law requires to show that you have been validated, vindicated, clean, proper protocol with the testimony of two or three witnesses by which that's how and that's the only way truth is validated. The testimony... You don't have healers today going out validating by the testimony of legitimate witnesses two and three to vindicate what they did was true. Not Jesus as a testimony. As a te all three Gospels say that as a testimony. We need a testimony. We need a testimony. Don't tell anybody until it's legitimate or legitimized. Don't tell anybody until it's been validated by the priest, the proper authority. Go through the proper chain of command. There's another reason why Jesus didn't want him to tell anybody. Jesus, at this point, Jesus has not died. Why did Jesus come into the world? He didn't come to do miracles. That's what Elijah and Moses came for. They came to do miracles. Jesus did not come into the world to do miracles. That's not the gospel. That's not the saving message. Jesus did miracles. No, it's not even in 1 Corinthians 15 on a definition of the, of the gospel. But up to this point, that's all that Jesus has done. He's only done miracles. He's preached and he's only done miracles. He hasn't died. That's why he came. That was his mission. To die as the Lamb of God, as a substitutionary death on behalf of sinners. So he hasn't finished his mission yet. He's got, you know, he's got about a year and a half of ministry still to go. If he had turned this around with an ego like modern-day healers and human beings would, you want to garnish and take advantage of all your popularity? Oh, yeah, go tell everybody. And hey, let's write a book, and I'll put my picture on the front and the back of the book, hey, on in the inside too. And we'll have conferences about me. And we'll tell everybody about, about me and how great I am. He could have done that. He's actually resisting that momentum and that press. 
into it because in John chapter 6, that's what the crowds want to do. He does a miracle. He creates all kinds of free food for everybody, and it says the crowds, thousands of them crushed in on him, trying to make, trying to force him to be king. And you know what he's doing? He's running and hiding. No, no, thank you. You have wrong motives. Now's not the time, and I don't want to be the kind of king you want me to be. So this happens all throughout the Gospels. Luke chapter 8, verse 56. Matthew 9, verse 30. Matthew 12, verse 16. Uh, and so many other places where he's saying, tell no one, tell no one, tell no one, tell no one. This is before his death, before his resurrection. Tell no one. Don't say anything. Keep it quiet. And then as soon as he dies and rises from the, the dead and he meets with his apostles, he says, proclaim it. Tell everyone to the ends of the earth. Not that I am a healer, but that I am the Savior who came and died for sinners. My death and resurrection, that is the good news. That's the only thing that can save. There will be a day to proclaim it, but now is not the time. That's the response. And then finally, the report. What report? Well, the report we saw of the leper, he shared a report with everybody he wasn't supposed to. And then just a report about Jesus himself and how he handles this breach of trust or violation of a command that he just gave. Uh, Luke, uh, Mark is very specific uh, regarding the report, and then Jesus says, shh, don't tell anybody, go to the priest. He says, no, I ain't going to do that. Mark 139 says this, as soon as he got healed, he went out and began to proclaim it freely. That means shouting at the top of your lungs. Proclaiming it freely to spread the news around to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city. Can you imagine? As the crowds are crushing in, he can't even move. But rather, he stayed out in unpopulated areas, isolated areas, deserted areas, getting away from the crowd so that his mission will not be derailed. He has another year and a half of ministry to go. And they were coming, they were trying to hunt him down no matter where he was, and they were coming to him from everywhere. What's the report? Verse 15, back to Luke 5. But the news about him was spreading even farther. Large crowds were gathering to hear him, remember? And it wasn't because, oh, Jesus, Hosanna, your Lord, your Savior, your Messiah, you're the, the chosen one. It was, heal me, give me a miracle, I want food. Overthrow the Romans. That's what they wanted. Jesus wasn't going to have, he kept his priorities. He was focused. He tells us clearly, especially in the Gospel of John, he did one thing and one thing only. That was obey the will of the Father. He will not be derailed by demanding, fickle, emotional human beings. He's focused on the honor of the Father. Even with these large crowds crushing in on him, trying to manipulate him, intimidate him, use him. Nevertheless, in his grace, he always healed them, laid his hands on every one of them, the gracious Savior. Why did he do miracles? To validate his message, to validate who he was as a person, but also to validate his spoken message, which was that he came to fulfill Old Testament, to die on behalf of sinners as a substitute for their sin, to appease the wrath of the Father, to rise again from the dead, to go back into heaven, and to reign as King of kings and Lord of lords as the only Savior in the universe. And his miracles that came with that validated that message. That's why he did miracles, not to entertain people. They were acts of mercy, they were acts of kindness, they were acts of grace, and those all represent true attributes of God, and Jesus Himself is God. But really, that's kind of secondary. They were to validate His message, as the Old Testament promised. 
So the news is spreading everywhere. And then verse 16, but Jesus himself would often slip away. And we see this in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke in particular, where busy day of ministry, Jesus slips away to be by himself, to be with the Father to pray. Mark chapter 1, verse 35, that's how Jesus begins the day, as was his custom, or as was his routine, or as was his habit. Early in the morning, while the sun was still down, Jesus went and found a deserted place to pray, to pray to the Father, to plead with the Father, to get in sync with the Father, to see what God's will was. Was Jesus deity in a human body? Absolutely. Did Jesus abandon his attributes in the incarnation? No. Was Jesus completely God? Yes. But at the same time, he relinquished the rights to exercise all of his attributes in subjection to what the Father wanted every moment, every step of the way. He was going to be in tune and do only what the Father wanted as it's communicated through the Holy Spirit. So he was utterly dependent upon the Father from moment to moment, day to day. And that's why he, that's why he desperately had to pray every day to pursue the will of the Father. What an example. So this is an amazing story. It's a true story. It really happened. Jesus is the blessed Savior. Jesus went back to heaven. He's not here on earth. He's not doing miracles like this anymore. He's not walking around. He is literally in heaven, the right hand of the Father, in a resurrection body. He's coming again someday. He will do these miracles again. But in the meantime, while we wait, while we wait as sojourners in this life, in this fallen world, amongst infirmities, many of which don't go away at our pleading, at our prayers, Death is inevitable. Scripture says that. It's appointed to man to die once and then judgment. The Bible says clearly our outer man is decaying day by day. That's the bad news. The good news is if you're a Christian, your inner man is being renewed moment by moment after the image and pattern of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not our home. Our home is in heaven. We are waiting with great anticipation for the coming of the glorified, risen Jesus Christ, who when He comes in glory... He is going to transform our lowly bodies, metamorphosis, after the pattern of His amazing, supernatural, glorious, perfect, eternal resurrection body. And what a homecoming that will be. Amen? Boy, that's something to go to lunch on. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank You for our time together and, again, the privilege to study Your Word. Thank You that in Your grace through your Holy Spirit, through faithful apostles, through faithful saints, through the ages, you preserved the New Testament for us so that today we can look back 2,000 years and know it is reliable, it is true. We can have certainty, and as a result, it grows our faith. And with that, we pray that it grows our love and devotion for you. May we be like this leper, Lord, knowing and being reminded that we have a need. We have deep-seated sin, even as believers still, that we have to contend with. And we thank you that, Lord Jesus, you died for that sin, all of it. And in you, we find cleanness, wholeness. And we look forward to being with you in heaven, the resurrection, where that wholeness will be complete and final once and for all. We give you all the praise. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.